Welcome to the Mench Warmers. It's mid-April. We're here to talk about sports. I'm Gabe. That's Jamie. Uh, thanks for joining us. We have gotten some great feedback on our first couple episodes. Wanted to give you guys a little more insight into who we are and what we're doing here. Uh, my name is Jamie Hirsch. I'm stereotypically a uh, lawyer. Enjoying doing this podcast. I live in Toronto here with my friend Gabe. Hi, I'm Gabe. We don't actually live together, but we both live in Toronto, although that would be adorable. Uh, I work at a giant corporation. Gabe Pulver is my name, and uh, we're having a great time with this. So please keep listening. Keep uh, smashing that like button and giving us feedback and subscribe. We're available on uh, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, all those uh, fun places for podcasts. And we've gotten feedback from our one friend who uses Stitcher, and he says that we are on there. That's great. Yeah. Uh, we've got a Twitter account now. You can follow us at Menschwarmers. Uh, Spelt just like it sounds, but for our, uh, if there are any Gentiles listening to this podcast, it's M-E-N-S-C-H, Warmers. Uh, you can follow me also at James Hirsch, uh, also spelt like it sounds. And if you can't spell other either of those things, look for the our show page on the Canadian Jewish News website. Uh, we're brought to you as always by the CJN Podcast Network. Big fans of them. Uh, our producer Alex is here with us. Uh, we've got a really exciting episode today. Got our first special guest, which is exciting because this is not traditionally a call-in show. Is it Eliyahu? Uh, how thematic. Passover's coming this weekend, so while we're waiting for Eliyahu, I don't know if he's coming yet on this podcast. Although we do have an empty microphone with his name on it. I'll open the door. Uh, well, Gabe, it's April 15th, the Ides of April, as it were. Yep. And uh, there's some big sports news that we got to talk about. Tiger Woods won yesterday at, at Augusta. It's his first major victory since 2008. Uh, it's his fifth green jacket. Uh, you and I have both been big fans of Tiger for his whole career. Yep. And it's just amazing to see him back on top. Are Jews allowed in Augusta? Ooh, good question. I think yes. I think by law they have to be. Mm. Uh, are there any Jewish members of Augusta? I think there must be a few at this point. Like your CEO of something. Like if Sheldon Adelson calls, can you show up and play? Yeah, or like Michael Eisner or something like that. Right, Michael Eisner's a good one. He's probably a member. Uh, I know certain people in the U.S. Uh, political structure get membership, but I think it might be only president. So I don't know right. if like uh, Secretary of State Matt, Madeleine Albright is a member. Probably not. Probably not. But for I know other Con reasons. I think Condoleezza, Condoleezza, Condoleezza right. was the first female member. Yeah, but it wasn't because she was Secretary of State. I think it was just because she's a big sports fan and, uh, and, a, good, sure and, a, good, and a good golfer. Uh, yes, I'm sure. Though I'm sure Secretary of State helped. Yeah. So back uh, to Tiger. Back to Tiger. Big win. Uh, pretty amazing to see him uh, almost hold that shot on 16. Yep, that was amazing. Especially given his history at that hole. Always magic on 16 with Tiger. And he made that birdie and went two up, and it pretty much felt like destiny. Uh, you know, he's come a long way, and part of what he's come from. I know some of you are asking right now, okay, okay, sports, I get that, but what's the Jewish angle of this? Gabe, do you know the Jewish angle of, for Tiger Woods? Um, I have some guesses. Well... Let me tell you, one of the women uh, that he had some extramarital relationship with, uh, Rachel Yucatel, right. uh, is a member of the tribe. No way. I'd assume he has had sex with more than one Jewish woman in the past. Look, that's not really for us to say. I'm sure he has. He lives in Florida after all. Uh, <laughs> I, I think, I'm not sure, I think his current girlfriend's last name is Herman. So That sounds, that sounds likely she's Jewish. It's definitely possible. So yeah. maybe he has a type. Who knows? Maybe. Yeah. But great to see Tiger win. Uh, he, he can be an honorary Jew. Uh, he, we, we'd take him anytime. That's we right. Him. He would have equally been not allowed into Augusta so many years ago. Well, not that many years ago, to be perfectly honest with you. But he's allowed in now, and that's doing great. Um, should we talk about today's episode? Absolutely. So we got a special guest today, uh, David Goss, 
from uh, the Extra Time podcast, MLSsoccer.com. Comes out every Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, he's a soccer expert, MLS commentator, play-by-play man, color man, uh, weekly podcast aficionado, and soccer knower guy. Uh, he called into us from a tournament in Dallas, the Global U17 Club Tournament, which he is currently hosting on Twitch. Uh, by the time this airs, the tournament will probably be over, but if you feel like watching Going Back in Time, uh, he's available, and I bet his broadcasts are still online. You can follow him, find him on Twitter at Empire Goss, Empire G-A-S-S. Just a note, I did pronounce his name wrong at some point in the interview, and he quite politely corrected me. He's got a lot to say about European soccer and anti-Semitism, as well as uh, some histories and, and Jewish soccer players that some of us were aware of and uh, some of us were not. Yeah, it was great to get his feedback on uh, the history of Jews and European soccer uh, in England and Netherlands. And I think it was a great interview. It gave us a real perspective on uh, Jews, Jews in the beautiful game. Yes. Yeah, so uh, please enjoy our interview with David Goss. So we're here with Dave Gass, the host of the uh, MLSsoccer.com podcast and uh, the Twitch voice of the U17 Global Tournament, which is happening this weekend. Yeah, so much has happened I want to make fun of you for. But let's start with it, David Goss. But I'll take oh, Goss! I called it since kindergarten. Oh, well, my apologies. Wow, thank, th- thanks, for, uh, thanks for whitewashing one of our guests, Gabe. Exactly. Well, thanks, Dave, uh, so much for being here. Glad to have you on and uh, glad to have you part of the conversation on uh, here to have a conversation with us about Jews and soccer and uh, keen to hear everything you have to say about it. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I think as a huge soccer fan, the part that appeals to me about soccer is the global element of the game. So mm-hmm. obviously for Jewish people talking about issues, that's what pertaining to Jews around the world. It's almost all touched by soccer. That's right. Perhaps a, a great place to start for us is, as you and I have spoken about in the past, um, but in, in sort of the terms of Jewish soccer fandom, specifically uh, with Tottenham Hotspur. Their fans are known globally throughout London and beyond as the Yids or the Yid Army. Um, and perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the history of that name. So soccer teams, soccer clubs, they're different than what we think of as sports in the U.S. and Canada, where it's just each city gets a professional team, someone owns it, everyone in the city roots for that team, and that's it. Uh, soccer clubs most of the time around the world came through organizations like athletic clubs or universities or social clubs. A lot of them are ethnic or religiously based because they were just whatever grouping of people started to come together, play, and then... The professional clubs we see nowadays are the one that either got more funding or were from larger groups of people. So you often see soccer teams have connotations of certain sorts. So I think an easy specific one is in Milan. You have Inter Milan and you have AC Milan. AC Milan was Athletic Club Milan, and then they didn't allow foreigners to play. So college kids in that city made up a different team name called International Milan, where international people were allowed to play with. And those three teams ended up becoming huge clubs. And it's part of the ethos still, but obviously it changes over years. So for Tottenham, they were located in North London. And uh, as my understanding, as Jews, I think in the early 1900s, started to move you know, from Eastern Europe to London, 
this old Jewish neighborhood started to get filled up and North London was kind of an emptier area where you could get work in factories and stuff like that. So it started to become a heavily Jewish area. Um, and so Tottenham around the country started to become known as a Jewish club. And um, in England, part of the stretch or the push by Jews, especially second generation Jews, to feel accepted, uh, they started to become more active in being fans of soccer teams because historically soccer in England was played on Saturdays. The pro games were day games because there was no lights, obviously, at the time, and they were on sure. Saturdays, so Jews didn't go. And then the second generation of Jews started to become big fans of the team. And so that's when Tottenham started to become the Jewish club uh, around England. Mm-hmm. And would they... Would their popularity have anything to do with uh, maybe people getting less religious, able to go on Saturdays, or did they avoid playing Saturday afternoons? No, it, it became people being re- less religious. Um, there's like joking stories. Uh, if anyone's interested by this, I recommend reading a book called Does Your Rabbi Know You're Here? It's a book <laughs> about Jews and soccer in England. Um, it's written by a guy who's from Leeds, which was another famous or another Jewish club, and I think that's a huge Jewish population in England or was at least at the time. Um, but the story was, as, you know, um, as the Jews started to assimilate, especially the second generation of Jews after World War One, this was a way for them to show that, you know, they were really English. Because from my understanding, and I'm obviously from New York, so I'm from, like, the most Jewish place on the planet, but when you go to England, there's a different relationship between Jews and the general population. It's not really as comfortable as it is uh, as I felt in the United States. And so I think there was a, a strong effort to show we are assimilated, we're English, because English has a stronger identity than the USA or Canada. So they had to show that they were true English gents. They were lads. They were a part of this. And so this was a way to do it. Right. And was there, uh, was, did there become a time when Tottenham stopped having as much of a Jewish representation Uh do they continue to have an, a largely Jewish fan base, or did that sort of go away? As far as we can tell, uh, Harry Kane is not Jewish. He's not Jewish. Uh, Sung Mun Hing is not Jewish. Christian Erickson is not Jewish. But there's never really been a Jewish representation on the field for Tottenham. There has been Jewish ownership. In the 90s, mm-hmm. they had a Jewish owner, and they actually currently have, for soccer, when you have a group of minority owners, one of them normally actually actively runs the team, and they're the president. But Daniel Levy is the current president of the team, uh, and he is Jewish. Um, And so, you know, there's Jewish people on the money side and on the business side, but not on the field. Um, And, yeah, so the fandom over the years, Arsenal and Tottenham are the two teams in North London. They're located basically in the same neighborhood. They've always been the biggest of rivals. As it went along post-World War II and into the 60s and 70s, it really became split fans in that area between Arsenal and Tottenham uh, being Jewish fans. And I I don't know exact numbers, obviously, or anything, but right now I don't think Tottenham really has a larger Jewish fan base than other clubs around the country. But the Yid, you know, the Yid name, calling them the Yids, the songs they choose to sing, and the songs that a lot of teams sing at them still remain. And uh, I'm sure we're about to talk about this a little more, but a huge part of soccer is the fan culture, supporters' culture. Um, they're called different things in every country and every group. Some call them ultras. Some countries call them curvas because they sit at the curved part of the stadium. Um, some call them supporter sections, whatever it is that you want to call them. And 
my mom calls them alt rights. That's another option depending on where you are. Some places they're alt left. There are famous clubs that are violently liberal. So do the Tottenham supporters have a political bent as far as uh, as the Premier League is concerned? Not really. It's a club that's more mainstream. Chelsea was the one in London that was known for being fascist, for having the skinheads, for being a bit more violent, as was West Ham, which is considered more uh, of a dodgy neighborhood. And Millwall up north is like the most dangerous club of fans in the country. As far as I remember, and I know this from reading Among the Thugs, but Chelsea fans were really closely aligned with the National Front in the 1990s in, in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. It's a safe place for these fans because now, obviously, technology has changed it, but it was an opportunity to go into a building where you had something broadcast on national TV around the country and to say these things and to chant these things and to be around people like you without really being able to be singled out. And that's where soccer has stood in Europe for a while. And and sometimes it's been good where, you know, they say in Eastern Europe, it was the one time you could, in some of the – Soviet Union countries speak your true language. Like you could sing in Lithuanian or Estonian or, you know, or Polish. Um, other times there was chances to chant political things in places like Spain against Franco if you were at a Barcelona game. So there's positives to it, but there's also been huge negatives um, for more people that are looking, you know, for, to get into fights and looking for violence and don't really, I don't think, care about the sport that much. But um, it, it was been a safe place. And that's among the thugs dives into Chelsea, which was at the time one of the most violent and dangerous. It's changed now as they've gotten, one, a Jewish owner, and two, become more of a mainstream club and become a, a bigger team. So now everyone roots for them. They used to be a, a bad team, so they're really the only people that were loyal to them were these fans. And uh, as I understand it, Chelsea even thought of uh, sending some fans to go on trips to Auschwitz as sort of uh, broadening their horizons. Uh, I, I understand... I, has that actually happened, or has it just been uh, suggested? So it's just that just came up a couple months ago for the first time, and I think that that was there's some organizations now, nonprofits that these clubs or other sports teams have reached out to in terms of sensitivity training and things like that. I don't think the fans have actually gone. Uh, I'm okay. not really sure. I don't really know that like having a bunch of racist and anti-Semitic people rewarding them by sending them on a trip to a foreign country is like actually that great an idea. But fair, fair enough. I'm not the expert. Well, you know, you, you'd imagine they got to do something. I mean, I, I assume there's more Jewish owners than just uh, Abramovich. And I, I know there's some Muslim owners as well, uh, Saudi owners and, and the Khan, fa- Khan family. The Khan family. And I would assume that, you know, it, it's not nice for them uh, as owners of a team to have supporters who are, you know, yelling anti-Semitic or Islamophobic slurs at different players. Uh, if they're owning a team and sport it sort of uh, supposed to symbolize the team, they, they can't they can't enjoy the fans behaving that way. You mentioned the fans earlier. They tend to chant things at Tottenham and share things, you know, sing songs. And I would assume those songs aren't necessarily, oh, yes, we love Jews and respect them as people. No, it's <laughs> There's not a whole lot of uh, parentheses in the songs in which they say they don't actually mean it or it's not really bad. Um, it's one of the issues with this whole thing, and I think, Gabe, this is where it came up with us when we talked about it. We were going before Toronto FC game we were going to together. We got into this conversation. I've met a lot of Americans and Canadian Jews who are like, yeah, I'm a Tottenham fan because they're the Yids. And it's not 
really positive because it was something that was forced on this this club because opposing fans thought it was a negative thing to say to them. And then it reached the point where it was adopted as a badge of honor. But it's like you don't pick up a badge of honor off the ground if you actually think it's something that's good. And so then it kind of became this caricature. And so you've got, you know, two parts of this. One is the comedy of the whole thing. There is a famous story that they uh, Tottenham supporters brought a number of uh, Jewish fans to the game and sang a song where circumcised, how about you? And had them all show their, I guess, circumcision. I don't know if that's the word you use for that. Wieners. We got pretty we got pretty raunchy in the uh, Bob Craft uh, uh, extramarital proclivities discussion. So I think everything goes on this podcast. Right. Say it. They're weenie whack. Right. Uh, they're catching as that. So it sounds like it's sort of gone full circle and full circle again. Uh, you know, embracing Judaism, Jews embracing the team, uh, the fans who aren't Jewish embracing the Judaism, Jewish aspect of the team, and now people saying. You know, let's hold on a minute and maybe chanting Yid, Yid, Yid is not uh, the most positive thing for Jews or Britain or Tottenham. Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually, uh, to add to this, a little outside of England as well, Ajax, which is the biggest club in the Netherlands, they have a relationship or a connotation as well as a Jewish club. And it came about, one, because I think in Netherlands, Amsterdam was the largest Jewish community and a lot of fans of Ajax were Jewish, but also because the Jewish flag, or the Israeli flag, I guess, the Star of David, those logos represent part of, partially the resistance to the Nazis, which the Dutch are really proud of. Whether they actually resisted that much or not is another conversation, which I would love to have. We'll have you on our other Holocaust history podcast. That's exactly what I want to talk about. So that represented something that they were proud of. So they used similar symbols, and there are similar connotations are called Jew army. People call them the Jews. People complain about them being the Jews. Um, so that's another part of it that's happening. So it's actually in Europe, it's in England, it's, it's a bit all over the place. And do you think this gets some non-Jewish fans? Like, I know they throw back and forth anti-Semitic stereotypes, but do you think this has some non-Jewish fans that, like you said, the Dutch are very proud of the resistance, who might be more sympathetic to Jews? Yeah, I think that's definitely a possibility, and I think a lot of times when you talk about these things, you're talking about, you know, the hardcore, small subset supporters for a lot of these teams. You're not talking about general fans. I mean, you can only fit 35, 45,000 people in a lot of these stadiums. So you're not talking about everyone that roots for these teams. But I think when you look especially at Europe, in being Jewish in Europe in the modern times, first of all, they're, they're massive minorities. So the majority of people sure. who are hearing these things, singing these things, talking about these things, probably don't know Jewish people in person. And so it's not, oh, this is this abstract thing I'm talking about, but in my real life, it's okay, because they probably don't have a ton of interaction with Jews. And on top of that, I mean, we can get to 8,000 political things that are going on in Europe, but none of it is really good for Jews at all right now. So you add that this to that environment, and there's no positives coming from it. Well, as you mentioned before, you, you know some American fans who have supported Tottenham, and I'm sure there's Ajax supporters as well, maybe in Israel if they uh, embrace the Israeli flag. flag. So have those teams, uh, have they reached out to their sort of non-European Jewish fans to try and create a community of uh, sort of international Jewish fandom uh, supporting one team? So Tottenham hasn't really pushed the being a Jewish club as part of their ethos 
you know, from a corporate standpoint, like using it in advertising and getting out there and talking about it. And in Israel, from my experience, Liverpool is the biggest English team. Um, Avi Cohen plays for Liverpool as the first Israeli to play in the English league in around the 70s for a couple of years. Um, so they became the big club. There was two or three other Israelis that played for Liverpool. And then, of course, Yossi Benyun spent a large part of his career with Liverpool, and he was has been the most successful Israeli in the modern era. So for the most part in Israel, Liverpool is the largest club. I don't really know anyone who supports Tottenham that I've ever hmm. met in Israel. So they don't have a large presence. It's normally Liverpool. Barcelona has a large presence. I think there's a connection for Israelis with the Catalonians fight and the message and their beliefs and what they do and all, uh, and then Chelsea now because Abramovich has made a, a push to bring his team players to Israel he hosts tournaments in Israel for other teams he brings Russian clubs that he has ownership and part of to Israel those are the three biggest teams in Israel around the world are you are finding that Jews are connecting with at times the Yid Army um, moniker but as I said it's not actually pushed by the team and I think it's just something that you know, for all of us, we go on birthright, we have fun, we see it somewhere, and we're like, oh, I'm Jewish, I'll root for the Jewish team. And then when you start to see the actual truth behind it, that's when it gets a bit uglier. Do you think that there will ever be a time where they stop being the Yid Army, or is that just, is it too fu- fundamental a part of what Tottenham is? It'll be interesting, because the, the demographics of being a supporter in England are changing. The, the demographics of England are changing, right? So you're sure. talking about things that are passed on from from father to son at fans, but now you're talking about heavily Pakistani, Indian, Southeast Asian fan supporters because England's changing. I don't know if those fans, that's something that's really going to move along as the years go along. And you also add the fact that England's doing a, a, a more concerted effort, as is the rest of Europe, to try and keep the crazy supporters out, the violent supporters out of the stadium. So I think it's something that we could see go away. It's something that I think is generational. And as we get into what we hope is a more positive error and people are a bit more, what are we calling it, politically correct, when in reality it's just not being super offensive all the time, I think it could move that way. It's not um, it's not Cleveland Indians. you know. It's not Washington Red right. Onion football team. It's not on that level where you've done something horrific to these people and then you're wearing it as a badge of honor. But it is a caricature of Jews. And the right. way it's discussed and the way it's chanted and the way it's done, it's not positive. And no part about it is, oh, you know, this is a fun part of our history. It's really, it was seen as something that was, um, you could look down on that club for. And now it's something then that the fan group tried to turn back around. But none of that is something you really want to be associated with. Right. I feel like the New York Mets somewhat have a similar, uh, I would say, association. It's not necessarily named, but there's a lot of notable Jewish Mets fans. They were in a, a Jewish neighborhood for a very long time. And they're sort of seen as the second team you can make fun of um, throughout New York. And uh, some of that may be tied to Judaism, but I think it's, there's a parallel but if you go between the Yankees and the Mets and between Arsenal and Tottenham. Yeah, I absolutely would agree. I'm a Mets fan, but I did actually, when I started watching soccer, I was an Arsenal fan. Don't know why, and that's kind of part of this whole thing. Is like for people around the world, you're just picking teams. Uh, the Mets definitely sure. have that connotation. Queens is clearly an area that represented 
a Jewish community for a while. The Bronx did, but not as much. But yeah, I definitely agree with that breakdown. But you get still back into the part where in American sports, there isn't this identity politics in sports. There isn't this, you know, cutting connection where when two clubs play each other in soccer, it's the working class versus the wealthy. It's, you know, this city that raided this other city in a war a hundred years ago against each other. It's not Franco and his uh, republic or his kingdom in Madrid against Barcelona and their fight for freedom. Like soccer has so much more flashpoint and so much more emotions in what happens that it's not as simple and it makes it more offensive when you cross that line rather than just being like, wow, Jerry, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, the Mets fan. Right, and you go to a Mets game, no one's yelling yid 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 yid, even in a positive manner. Uh, no one, no one's chanting that that way. I don't know. I think they might have done that towards Ike Davis for a while. I feel like I would listen to a, a klezmer, uh, a klezmer version of Go Mets Go. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. The fact that what Mike Jacobs was it who isn't Jewish, they did a bobblehead for him, a Jewish heritage today one time, and then they had to come into the post game press conference and be like, by the way, I'm not Jewish. Uh, I don't think you've li- listened to episode two of our podcast yet wherein we tell this story that's okay we go we go quite in depth into the mike jacobs uh jewish appreciation day uh which apparently they i we looked into it afterwards they claim was a coincidence that it just happened to be jewish heritage celebration night and the mike jacobs t-shirt giveaway but i mean you know coincidence is uh is a good excuse i think it's an easier one they just didn't check so we got a question for you uh we like to play a game in on our podcast where one of us quizzes the other with a notably sort of Jewish athlete. Um, and it's the incumbent on the other host, whoever it be, or perhaps our guest, to give their opinion on whether or not this is someone who's Jewish. So before we go to our main contestant for today, of who we're going to talk about, I do want to point out that I did not know until today that David Beckham's grandfather is Jewish, and he identifies personally as half Jewish. So I don't know if you knew that. I definitely didn't. Um, and I feel like that's something I ought to have known or more, more Jews would have been talking about. So surprisingly, uh, th- that was, was a big surprise for me. That's not our question today, though. Real quick, none sure. of us know that. Like, I knew that, but not something that I just like, found out. It's something I saw one time when I was on whatever 18,000 list of Jews and blah, blah, blah thing. Right. Which means it's not real. He identifies as it. As if. If you identify as Jewish, we'd all know David Beckham was Jewish. This is like Madonna-level Kabbalah. Okay. Well, then I guess that clears things up about why it's not uh, why he's not on the cover of uh, you know Greatest Jewish Athletes uh, book right. or something like that. I mean, it goes back to what you said about English Jews as well as that you have to be more English than you are Jewish. So you are English and you happen to be Jewish instead of being American and Jewish or a Jewish American. I should say that was one of the most challenging experiences for me. I spent a semester living in England and I was 18 years old, coming from New York. And I had never seen some of the things that they do. Like, we do a prayer for our country, but they do the prayer for the queen. And the way they talk about these things, it's like they're trying to, like, put on, like, yeah, no, we're okay, we're good. And you start to realize, you know, you don't know that many English Jews. It's not that huge a population. But French have a larger Jewish population. Like, does anyone want to be Jewish in France right now? No. But it still is. There's a weird relationship between... Jews in England that I don't fully understand that clearly has some weird background. Mm-hmm. Well, this is sort of more mainland Europe, 
But we wanted to ask you to give your uh, judgment and opinion on Mario Balotelli. Telly. Mario Balotelli. As being Jewish? Is he Jewish? I hope so. I don't think so. I don't know. I don't know if you know the story. He was adopted and raised by a Jewish family. Whose last name is Balotelli? He took on their name. I did not know that they were Jewish. I know he was adopted. Uh, yep. And that's like the famous story behind him because the Italians chant at him that he's not Italian when he scores goals for Italy, which is really fun to hear. I don't think that's entirely because he's Jewish. Uh, <laughs> I think it probably has more to do because he's a child of African immigrants. Uh, although it may be because he's black. Yeah. Those people that root for that. Team. But I'm saying he's 100% Jewish because Mario Balotelli is the most Jewy guy ever. Oh, how's that? How's that? It's because he complains about everything. He scores goals and he complains right after. And it's like, he'd be happy for 10 seconds, but he can't because he's never shit. Why always <laughs> me? He celebrated scoring a goal with a question and a complaint. That's, that's the great. most Jewish thing you could possibly do. That's great. That's very Jewish. I think that, that uh, strengthens his bona fides, uh, yeah. a, a Jew by choice and adoption, and by uh, his demeanor. <laughs> so I think we're willing to declare him in that's the right. pantheon of menschwarmers. He is a menschwarmer. Mario Batelli, you're one of us. Like it, or, like, it or, like it or leave it. A Balotelli. Mario Batelli is the kitchen pervert. Oh, God. <laughs> Mario Batelli, you're not one of us. Mario Balotelli, you are. <laughs> Uh, well, Dave, thanks so much for being here today. Uh, really appreciate you calling in and joining us here. Great to hear your input on uh, Jewish history of Tottenham and other issues about Jews and soccer. Uh, we'd love to have you back on, yeah. maybe uh, maybe uh, talking about Israel's chances of qualifying in 2022. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know what the odds are for that. I can't imagine very. Do high. they allow Jews into Qatar? Ooh, like, could a Jewish person go into the Qatari World Cup? That is a really good question. If we're going geopolitical here, I'm pretty sure Qatar is taking credit for like negotiating whatever peace has just occurred in the West Bank that will not last or something like that. Great. Maybe they're like into it. I, I think they've done things in the past. No one else in the Middle East likes Qatar. So maybe they're like okay with Israel right now because no one else will talk to them. Yeah, there has been a cooling of the, or the warming of the relations between Israel and Qatar uh, since they've been sort of isolated from the other Gulf states? I will tell you this. There is no chance for Israel to qualify. <laughs> I lived in Israel for a little while, and I got super pumped. And all these, because they were playing well at the time, this was going into 2010 World Cup. And mm -hmm. all the Israelis were like, no, it's all going to fall apart. Like, blah, blah, blah. I was like, you guys sound like Jets fans. Like, stop. Turns out that it always happens for them. So they kind of suck. Oh, that's a drag. Well, we'll have to check in on them and qualifying and see, see how that goes. Uh, but again, thanks thanks a lot for being here, and uh, we'd love to have you back again sometime. And just as a parting question, uh, do you have any anywhere on earth any Jewish soccer players the Menchwarmers fans should start paying attention to in America or beyond? Uh, there's a player that plays for the U.S. national team. His name is DeAndre Yedlin. He is half African American and half Lithuanian Jewish American. He's from Seattle, but he actually played for Tottenham. Now he plays for Newcastle United. Um, wow. He should be a major part of the U.S. team going forward. And, of course, Benny Failhaber, who is super Jewish. He's towards the end of his career right now, playing for the Colorado Rapids. But mm -hmm. um, he was really nice to my girlfriend when she worked in uh, public relations and events for Major League Soccer. So my household is a very big Benny Failhaber fan. Right. That's great. A certified mensch. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, what a good young boy. 
that's what we're looking for on this podcast. All right. Well, thanks again, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Yeah, thank you for having me, guys. Well, thanks again to Dave Goss for joining us today and for letting us know a little bit more about uh, Jews and soccer. Uh, Gabe, I think that's about all for us today. Uh, Passover's coming up soon. Do you have any uh, Passover plans? Yeah, having a Seder on Friday. Big whole family. Young little baby. Uh, oh, yeah. My sister had a baby a little while ago. He's not yet old enough for the four questions. Sure. But he is uh, going to be there, you know, crying and pooping his way through the uh, the Seder. So, like the rest of my family. Do you feel like you're embracing your role as an uncle? I think so. I think so. I'm uh, My sister and brother-in-law are equally unsporty so i've been asked to be the cool sports uncle sure takes them to this sport or that sport and and teach the little one about all the things we had we were watching the masters with him uh as he was just kind of sleeping so hopefully he's absorbing it in right and uh learning a tiger smooth swing that's the best way to get it by osmosis i think so just watching you're pulling a good uncle move of uh we are going golfing on saturday yeah that's true that's true should we bring the baby uh, I don't know if he's old enough for that, but uh, maybe next year. Yeah, maybe next year. Uh, how many people at your Seder? Uh, it should be about 20. There's uh, my aunt's house on Friday night. Uh, Saturday night, we usually do the second Seder just quietly uh, with with my mom. Um, you're hosting this year, aren't you? Yeah, my wife and I are hosting her family. Uh, it's only going to be 11 of us, but her sister's in from out of town with her boyfriend. Uh, we're meeting for the first time, so that should be very nice. What's the boyfriend like? Uh, I haven't met him yet. So, okay. Uh, I believe he's a neurophysicist, a neuro something. Neurotypical, perhaps. Perhaps. Um, but yeah, 11 person Seder. Uh, my wife and I are doing, not so bad. doing the cooking and should be a good time. It's our first time hosting. Uh, I'm a vegetarian, as you, as you well know. So you're not making a flunkin? Uh, Naomi is making a brisket. Uh, I am not making very much of anything. I think uh, Passover is like the worst possible holiday for vegetarians. Why is that? You just eat matzah and peanut butter for a week. Yeah. It's delicious. It, it sort of gums you up after seven days. That's eight true. Days. Internally? Internally, yeah. I mean, you know, Sfards eat the kitten yut, right? Like yep. beans and lentils and stuff like that, which is like, I would say, 80% of my diet these days. Yep. So it's really annoying to not be able to do that at all. Yep. Do you, What do you believe about the quinoa thing? Uh, I'm pro-quinoa. Look, let's be honest here. I don't keep kosher for Passover. Right. But for the purpose of the Seder, I'm not going to serve anything that's not kosher for Passover. So you're not going to serve quinoa? I think quinoa we might. But I think quinoa is just because Jews have been eating it since in, in post-Talmud what times. Jews? The Jews of Peru? No, that's what I'm saying is that only Jews now eat it. It just wasn't around in the Talmudic times for the scholars to say, oh yeah, this is kidney yut. Just not on the list. But now if they were redoing it, yeah, it fits all of the things that would be on the list. Yeah. So, you know, do a little extension here. It's, it's the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. And I understand Jews are very into that, but quinoa is BS. Yeah, if you're looking for logical consistencies within the, law, the rules of kashrut, you might be uh, <laughs> barking up the wrong tree here, my friend. Maybe. Uh, I agree that those things should be fine, and, you know, Sephards eat them, and I agree with that. I used to go to my sister-in-law's Sephardic Seder in Montreal, and it was great. There was, like, rice and beans and lentils. It was fantastic. Uh, but now it's like, I think I'm making a frittata, maybe. That that should be uh, maybe potato salad, something like that. So uh, potatoes okay? Uh, potatoes are fine. Oh, potatoes are fine. Of course. Okay. Yeah. And there's some, like, my wife's family is... Uh, Soviet Jews, so there's some specific Soviet uh, era Jewish delicacies right. that we get. A lot of uh, vegetables that aren't normally pickled. <laughs> I think herring, where you didn't expect herring, is like yeah. a real recurring theme. <laughs>
But uh, yeah, no, she's going. She's going. It's whole, in the Afikoman. She's going whole hog, and uh, she's making a brisket and matzo ball soup and all that. So yep. should be a fun. Is time. the soup chicken stock, or can you eat it? No, it's going to be real chicken soup. And wow, yeah. I, again, I'm, I think it'll be one of those situations where I, I eat a little bit before we actually get started, and then yep. uh, you know I'll say I'll satisfy myself with salad and matzo. And, and are you pro- doing one seder or two? Just one. Uh, I believe in the Israeli style, modern times. We only need one. But uh, I guess I'm not the only one who gets to make that decision. So Right. Uh, yeah, so thanks for joining us again. And love to have you back next time after Passover. Uh, hopefully by the time we, we're, we're back here, we'll all be back on, on that sweet, sweet chametz. That's right. And uh, enjoying bread to our heart's content, except at Gabe's house because his partner is gluten-free. I have to say, as someone with a celiac partner, uh, Passover was more just a solidarity week with the rest of her life. Right. And that we all just it, eat like she does every other every other day of the year, except without pasta. Yeah, so like, she can never eat anything that without you know, matzah. Casts its own shadow. That's right. Yeah. Has any leavening <laughs> in it or anything like that. No, I mean, she can eat rice and she can eat beans, but like we don't normally. It's just like a, sure. a lot of salads and, and cheese. Yeah, that, that sounds like quite the life. It, yeah. I mean, and chicken. We'll eat chicken, barbecue this or that. Okay. Well, I'm glad you feel uh, a week of solidarity. So thanks again for joining us, and we'll be back soon. Chag uh, Happy Passover. Next next, pod- next week in Toronto. Next next podcast in Toronto. Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks again to the CJN Network and our producer, Alex. I'm Gabe, and that's Jamie, and we're the Mentwarmers. Warmers.